Hey everybody, welcome to the third edition of the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alfonso Peccatiello. And this is Andreas Steno speaking. Guys, once again, thank you for the support. This week we breached 40,000 unique listeners to the podcast. You're great. Um, if I can ask you to, you know, help us further, rate the podcast on any app you download, you, you listen um, to and put the word out there. The Macro Trading Floor is going really well and thanks for your support again. Yeah, and uh, what a week it has been, Alfonso. Uh, I know you've been uh, visiting Poland, uh, but I've been following the uh, case around Elon Musk buying Twitter with a lot of attention. Um, so essentially, it's been kind of the story in financial markets this week. Um, and um, by the time we record the 27th of April, we don't know whether he will be able to buy Twitter eventually. Uh, but uh, the deal uh, is currently pending. Uh, but we know that he has secured around 25.5 billion of uh, fully committed debt. Uh, and a part of that is a uh, margin loan, uh, which he finances, or at least um, he pledges collateral with his uh, Tesla stocks and that uh, securities financing. Uh, so a lot of people have, um, have centered around that part of the financing since... Uh, it essentially means that he will receive a margin call if the Tesla stock falls a lot in value. Um, I've seen calculations um, pointing to a, a price drop of 43% leading to a, uh, a margin call um, from levels uh, seen yesterday. Uh, so th this is essentially something that you will have to deal with if the stock price of Tesla keeps dropping as we've seen over the past days. So basically his deal and he gets margin calls if the Fed goes ballistic and or if a bunch of guys on Reddit go and buy a 3x Tesla short product is that what you're telling me yes and uh, i mean uh, i don't know whether uh, we will see the vogue segment trying to <laughs> orchestrate like a short uh, squeeze on on, on tesla uh, but uh, it could for sure be fun if uh, if they started to do that um no suggestions given in that regards um <laughs> uh, but um I, I mean let's see what happens um uh, and and eventually, I think the biggest question, the question, is whether Donald Trump will um, will make his way back on Twitter. Uh, should Elon Musk um, finalize this uh, Twitter deal? Uh, so far, he said no, Trump. But who knows? Um, it's huge. Yeah, it's, it's huge. huge. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking talking about uh, the market reaction, um, actually, Andreas, to this Twitter announcement and the overall tech sector. A couple of guys were surprised that uh, despite nominal yields falling, actually the tech part of the market has been hammered pretty hard. We have the Nasdaq down 6%, I think, from Wednesday last week since we're recording. And people are like, hey, Alf, I mean, yields are dropping, tech stocks should be up. Well, not necessarily. So if you look under the hood for a second, and you immediately realize that yields are dropping in America, they're 10%, uh, 10 basis points lower since last week, but it's all explained by inflation expectation dropping 10 basis points. So real yields basically haven't gone anywhere and they remain, well, relatively elevated. If you look at, uh, at the past history, we, are, we have breached 0% in long-term real yields, risk-free real yields in the US. And when you discount future cash flows, obviously you should look at inflation adjusted uh, discount rates, in my opinion, rather than nominal discount rates. So basically from that perspective, you can say that real yields haven't fallen at all. And on top of that risk sentiment is that deteriorating across the board. Like if you look at other sectors, what do you see happening in, in the equity market? 
I think a couple of weeks back, uh, we started debating whether it made sense uh, to position for a um, a positive price move in consumer staples versus consumer discretionaries. Uh, and that has actually been a very good uh, trade if you had um, entered that trade a couple of weeks back. So essentially what we see is that uh, what I would call a low beta sectors, such as utilities and consumer staples, they perform. Uh, but there are also... Um, uh, other sectors with uh, usually a low beta, such as financials, um, but also energy um, that are not performing, given what we see uh, in commodity space, for example. Um, and this is also a reason why uh, we've seen a remarked setback for commodity producers for the first time, more or less, this year. Um, so that's quite uh, a dramatic change of scenery compared to the trend that we've seen since 1st of Jan. Uh, in in commodity space, um, and essentially, um, we are basically now standing at a crossroads. I think in terms of positioning in commodity space, uh, and um, the big question here is whether the supply side or the demand side will take the upper hand in pricing of commodities going forward, because we have kind of two uh, trends battling each other: a weak supply, but also weak demand. Um, I know that Powell is probably applauding this risk asset move. I mean, when is the last time that you have heard a Federal Reserve uh, chairman telling you that financial condition must tighten, basically? So he's getting it, right? The dollar is higher, credit spreads are wider, equity multiples are going down. He's probably sitting there and he's like, yes, that's cool. I like to see that. When is the last time we've, we've seen a central banker's probably happy with the with the move right <laughs> i he said something similar not to the same extent and clearly not as explicitly back in uh, in q4 2018 before the big sell-off uh but this time he's been extremely explicit uh, he's he's even telling you now that they're uh trying to destroy demand um it, uh, not using uh, such words but uh, he's telling you that demand needs um to to be brought down by um, via a, a tighter monetary policy, uh, so essentially he su- should salute this, um, given his uh, current intentions. Yeah, and on uh, on the commodity side, interesting what you said before, mate. I mean, the, so far market has been focusing on the supply side, and I posted a chart because the New York Fed has developed a very cool index, which is a global supply chain pressure index. So there are a bunch of indicators, I think 27 mixed in there. And they look at the standard deviation moves against um, history, basically, uh, an an average uh, of the last 25 years, if I'm not mistaken. And yes, I know the distribution is not normally distributed and blah, blah, blah. Why do you look at standard deviations? I'm now talking to the guys on Twitter trying to play professor with me because I mentioned that this is a five sigma deviation from uh, the long-term mean and they're like yeah but because it's not normally distributed okay fair enough but it still points to supply chains being you know very impaired uh, but now i think markets are focusing a bit more on the demand side here andreas i mean look at all the um, uh, emerging market ex- currency uh, sorry uh, commodity exporter countries they're suffering a bit as well brazilian real for example the australian dollar is down too and, and let me just mention a few takeaways from this week in terms of the demand side. Uh, first of all, uh, we've seen very weak uh, figures out of Europe. Uh, on the IFO index from Germany, that was a very weak uh, expectations index. It's pointing to a recession, no doubt, in Germany. Um, secondly, if we look at the latest figures for the weekly earnings, 
in the US, if we adjust those for the inflation pressure, then we are now running clearly below trend on weekly earnings, which is in sharp contrast to what we saw in 2021. This will also hit demand, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and then finally, if we look at the inventory data in the US right now, and also adjust that for the price increase that we've seen over the past year, then we are looking at inventories growing at a pace I haven't seen for quite a while, which is usually also a signal that demand is not following. Um, so I think that the signs are pretty clear now that demand is slowing. Um, I'll have to say that. Let me add that add up to the gloom story here, because there is a pretty decent forward-looking macro indicator, not on everybody's radar, which is the Philly Fed uh, six-month-ahead forecast for new orders. So this is 125 CEOs in the manufacturing sector telling you what do they expect in terms of new orders over the next six months, and it just printed at the lowest level over the last decade. So it's not exactly rosy uh, going forward. I guess expectations are also adjusting, Andreas. We have seen GDP being cut elsewhere in terms of forecast from Germany, uh, I think even to the US to a certain extent from analysts. But perhaps uh, this is a bit, um, yeah, well, still underplayed, if you ask me, which brings me to my fun take of the week, which yeah. is our friends at Deutsche Bank came out with a note, I think today or yesterday, telling us that in their opinion, federal funds rate might have to be as high as 5 or 6% in order to tame inflation. Well, I think if they go there, Andreas, they're not going to tame inflation only. They're going to kill anything, the bond market, the equity market, the housing market, and also Katie Woods, <laughs> as we say in French. <laughs> I, 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 uh, last week, I mentioned that uh, Katie Woods and ARK Invest, they updated their projections on the Tesla stock price. And I think in their bearish case, case they had Tesla trading at $3,000, uh, which is like three times the current spot level or thereabout. Um, and they haven't had the best of starts to that projection. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> um, but if... If I should mention one thing, uh, and let let me allow uh, uh, or allow me to call it the worst take of the week because I really find it a bad take. Um, at the IMF conference, I think it was last week, um, the um, managing director of the IMF admitted that both the ZB, the Federal Reserve, and the IMF, they basically looked like eight-year-olds chasing the ball around a soccer field right now. In a second. We act sometimes like eight years old playing soccer. Um, she said that literally okay. uh, when she was asked about why they uh, didn't project the inflation coming and all that. Uh, basically, it's a pretty fair picture painted, I guess. So in that sense, it's not the worst take of the week. It's probably the best take of the week. Uh, but it was surprisingly um, sort of, uh, how do you say that? Uh, it was surprisingly um, honest. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, go go watch that video. I tweeted it a couple of days ago. Uh, it's kind of funny. <laughs> Otherwise, uh, second worst take of the week is that I, I have to admit that I wrote something very stupid on Twitter. Um, so I, I, I would like to nominate myself as well for the worst take of the week uh, because I, I, I wrote that a backwarded commodity curve hints of the market pricing in lower commodity prices in the future. And I received a truckload of criticism from people in the commodity sector uh, as they tell me that uh, backwardation basically means that 
the current market is is trying to bid up um, current storage, uh, so they are trying to get uh, commodities out of storage, um, uh, and therefore you cannot see it as a signal that the market expects the price to drop in the future. So fair enough. Uh, I think that was a, a fair feedback. Um, so thanks for that. Oh, what a what a humble Danish guy. Very honest, beats himself up. I mean, incredible. Next time I promise to beat myself up. Oh, actually, if I have to beat myself up, here I am. So I, I um, a lot of people are telling me I got the macro picture right. Yeah, sure, this year. But I also pointed out that last year in August 2021, we actually had a bet, Andreas, remember that by the end of the year, I bet that core inflation in the US would be below two and a half or three percent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not a great pick. Not a great pick. So I was a very vocal disinflationist in August last year. Great mistake, basically because I was looking at the demand side of things, which has weakened quite a lot since uh, since summer last year. That was right on my models. I forgot to look at the supply side though. So <laughs> really, my bad. Yeah, and. I mean, talking about the demand side, uh, I think we just need to touch upon the situation in Europe because we have both interesting supply news and demand news from uh, the Eurozone, uh, not least when it comes to natural gas. Uh, what do you make of the latest news surrounding Russia not providing gas to Poland and Bulgaria, for example? Wow, the most interesting part of the news is that apparently already four or five companies dealing with Russia when it comes to natural gas and energy have already set up a Russian ruble account to pay in ruble, Andreas, which means they're going to basically, yeah, you know, uh, kneel towards the blackmail that Russia is providing here because they desperately need natural gas, right? And well, if you look at the ruble performance as well over the last week, it's basically the only emerging market currency appreciating against anything else in anticipation of such a move. And it's well, actually a political uh, problem here because natural gas prices are also going up. And so European policymakers are facing a situation where they have, you know, real wages going down. They have an inflation problem. They have a supply bottlenecks on energy. And they have probably a recession ahead of them, as you said before. And European policymakers are not known exactly to be, you know, pretty skilled at policymaking in the first place, if you ask me. So that's a very hard situation. And spreads like, you know, the BTP boon spread has been, has been widening pretty aggressively over the last few sessions. Uh, still, you know, contained below 200 basis points, but it's getting tricky also on, on euro against other currencies. What do you make of that? Well, I've been very vocal uh, over the past year that I expected euro dollar to trade below 105. And we are basically there now, um, more or less. So parity up next. I, I tend to think so, uh, given that uh, the ECB is simply stuck between a rock and a hard place uh, with a recession upcoming that they currently um, are unwilling to admit being a clear risk. Uh, I saw the Estonian member Mueller out saying today that he saw a low chance of a recession as if he almost wanted it by using the word chance. Um, but uh, that's an example of an ECB member simply not seeing the recession that is probably right uh, ahead of them. Uh, I mean, the forward-looking indicators uh, in Europe, for example, the IFO index from Germany points to a pretty clear recession risk uh, in this quarter and the next so I'm I'm not too upbeat on the ECB um, trying to hike interest rates. I'm not sure that they are, by the end of the day, capable of doing so. If 
Now time to introduce our guest for this week's macro trading floor. Um, his name is Michael Green. He's the chief strategist and portfolio manager at Simplify Asset Management. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate the invite. Hey, Mike, how are you doing? So let's uh, let's get this started. And as a first question, I would like to ask you. So generally, people out there say that the Fed hides until something breaks. So my question is how long until something breaks? And if it breaks, what is it? Well, so I would argue that we're already seeing stuff break, right? That's part of the irony is, is that if you look around the world, whether it's the Japanese yen, the euro, uh, the Chinese yuan, um, you know, uh, mortgage refinancings in the United States, new home sales, um, they're breaking. Right? I mean, this is, this is already happening. And it's part of the challenge that I would broadly argue that you have when you, you know, try to centrally plan the price of anything, right? It's not, there is no aggregate level. There is not a neutral rate for the entire economy. It's not like there's a light switch that you go to and you suddenly cross that level. And, you know, the answer is, uh, you know, everybody goes bankrupt above that point and everybody is solvent below that point, right? There's a spectrum of firms and individuals that have differing levels of sensitivity to the change in interest rates. And, you know, while we have barely seen the Fed move, we've seen an extraordinary change in the cost of financing for many corporations, right? It was just brought up uh, just today, for example, that Ford is struggling to refinance some of their asset-backed security lines, that others in the auto industry are genuinely struggling with the cost of refinancing and their ability to pass that through to customers in terms of lease deals, et cetera. So we're already seeing the signs that it's breaking. It's just a question of, is it going to break really badly? And what is the impact of future Fed hikes in terms of things like the two-year, et cetera? Because can, we can probably get used to it if it happens slowly enough. But the evidence is pretty clear that the combination of higher costs of debt service, higher costs of refinancing, higher costs of financing a new home purchase, and remember, the real challenge that we have in housing right now is, is that there is a shortage of people, particularly boomers, who are willing to sell their homes at somewhat reasonable prices and relocate into smaller houses or into different geographic you know, environments. Um, raising interest rates just means that if they go to refinance, which most of them still need to do, their cost of funds is exploded as well, right? So they could actually find themselves paying more for a smaller house in a monthly payment, even if they've taken cash out. So this is just, it's a mess. And I would argue you're already seeing things breaking. Mike, uh, if we look at the repricing that we've seen uh, of the expected Fed's funds over the next couple of years since New Year's, uh, the counter argument to what you just said would probably be that the market has been extremely resilient to such a remarkable repricing of the Fed Fund's future path. What do you make of that argument? Well, when you say the market has been extraordinarily resilient, what market are you referring to? Because that's, you know, that, that's part of the question, right? The S&P mm. being off, give or take 8 or 9% from all-time highs. Yes, that feels very resilient. But as you've heard me discuss and many others have highlighted, that you know, that statement of how much the S&P is down conceals an extraordinary amount of carnage underneath the surface. You know, so I, I was literally just looking at um, the unprofitable, um, the unprofitable tech indice, for example, right, which Morgan Stanley and a few others have variants of it very closely mimics the behavior of Kathy Wood's ARC funds, for example, 
But it's also following with almost perfect fidelity the behavior of the NASDAQ 100 in March 2000, right? And under that type of analysis, you know, we're kind of two thirds of the way through a dot com type collapse. It's just happened underneath the surface of the indices, which is obviously something that you've heard me talk about over and over again. The dynamic of passive flows supporting the largest stocks within the index, whereas the smaller stocks can be influenced to a greater extent by the behavior of discretionary managers. But Mike, um, backing up Andreas on the counter argument here, um, if you look at credit spreads, for example, so they've started widening a bit, uh, say investment grade credit spreads are like 80 basis point now in America. They have widened since the beginning of the year, but nothing alarming yet from that perspective, on, at least on the investment grade side. The other point I'd like to bring through is maybe Bitcoin. I mean, say, taken as a macro asset class, it is a very high beta asset class and it still trades around 40 k dollars so you you might want to expect some more carnage there which hasn't happened yet if you have to try and make a counter argument for that what's that why why are those asset classes still relatively resilient well bitcoin as you know is 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 the most pristine collateral that you can find so i you know no um i'm sorry i can't help myself um So on the credit side, I would highlight that we've actually seen an extraordinary move in credit, but it's largely been driven by what's referred to as the duration component of credit, right? So we've actually seen the largest sell-off in investment-grade bonds in basically the history of the index, right, The uh, of the LQD-type index. The difference this time around, and, and I literally just had this discussion internally with my team, you know, the difference this time is, is that that has come from the rate exposure as compared to the credit component of it. Right. Um, And that has two dynamics associated with it. One is is duration is negatively correlated. In other words, duration rises as coupon falls. So when you entered into the March 2020 framework where you had extraordinarily low finance refinancing costs subsidized by PPP loans, et cetera. So in other words, basically every borrower became something close to a high investment grade because they were backed to a certain extent by the Federal Reserve. You really the U.S. Treasury. you created conditions under which the refinancing spreads were very, very low. The coupons were low. The interest rates were low, right? And that raised the duration sensitivity of the high yield index. It raised the duration sensitivity of investment grade bonds to levels that we'd never seen before. Um, I would actually argue further that that was exacerbated by the dynamic of the longer dated a bond is, you know, the the greater the um, duration sensitivity is it. It, it greater the duration sensitivity of that bond, right? So a 30-year bond is going to have more duration sensitivity than a five-year bond. The ability to refinance in that time period has created conditions where it's very difficult to enter into true distress in a short period of time. If I refinance with a five-year piece of paper two years in, if I'm entering into distress, then clearly that was a terrible refinancing, but most of these companies bought themselves reasonable amounts of time. However, we're starting to enter into an environment in which those bonds now need to be refinanced, right? So usually you don't want to play a game of Russian roulette where you, as a particularly as a um, you know lower credit borrower, you don't want to find yourself within a year of expiry try, of, of maturity trying to refinance that bond because you simply don't have the cash to meet the maturity. If you're an investment grade borrower you can almost always meet that cash from um, either a short-term refinancing, the drawdown of a line of credit, or um, uh, the um, 
uh, use of cash on the balance sheet. That's kind of the definition of investment grade. But in the high yield space, I would argue that that's actually starting to become a little bit more suspect. And again, we're starting to see a number of companies that are hesitating to refinance, not so much because their credit spreads are so much wider, but because the interest rate, and they could care less whether it's coming from interest rate or credit spreads, but the new interest rate levels they're hoping will retreat. Right? So they're, they're hoping that there'll be the opportunity to refinance at something remotely close to what they were financing before. And if they can't, their profitability is going to deteriorate significantly. So I, I would argue that a little bit more time is basically all we're looking at before those spreads start to rise quite rapidly. Mike, the upcoming meeting at the Federal Reserve will probably also be very important for the theme that we just discussed. We know that they debate whether to hike 50 basis points or not. And they will also have to come up with a firm plan on how to reduce the balance sheet. What do you make of that balance sheet discussion? Will it be important for this credit market? You know, it's almost like the Bitcoin blockchain debate, right? So, you know, a lot of people say I'm not as worried about the interest rates because the interest rates themselves are still absolutely low. And several have pointed out, again, particularly within the investment grade space, that with corporate profit margins where they are, for the most part, a slightly higher interest rate is not a significant issue. Um, if, if you think about the balance sheet dynamic, there's two separate concerns on it. One is how much, did, how much role did the balance sheet expansion play in suppressing treasury rates? And um, to a much greater extent, I would argue things like mortgage rates, right? So the, the rate at which you refinance your mortgage. Um, the mortgage rates have actually become somewhat meaningless at this point because the refinancing levels have collapsed. The new home purchases are already starting to show significant resistance. Like the answer is pretty straightforward that you're not getting issuance or creation of new mortgages. That of course then raises the prospect of an increase in distressed mortgages because people can't sell their house, their homes at the prices that they need to sell them for, right? So will we actually see people start, will we see inventory start to build on the market? Will we see prices get cut? Will we see you know, a rise in distressed sellers as potentially people lose their jobs under recessionary conditions and need to sell their homes in difficult environments? Unfortunately, the answer to that appears to be yes, right? Um, so that, that's what I would argue um, one angle of attack is on the balance sheet side, right? Is does it remove a source of financing for risky assets? The more uncertain question is, what is the role that the balance sheet expansion played in terms of suppressing interest rates, particularly at the long end? And this is an area where my partner, Harley Bassman, and I actually have some pretty strong disagreements. He's of the view that the Fed has manipulated rates lower. My general view is, particularly at the longer end, you're actually looking at conditions where when the Fed expands their balance sheet, they're perversely manipulating rates higher, yields higher. Um, and that the natural ex expectation then is, is that the long end of the curve should begin to sell off and retreat back towards what appears to be a more long-term neutral rate, which, you know, if you look at structures like a 10-year tenure or a 20-year tenure, which are kind of these very long pictures of that don't change all that much with immediate policy, you know, those are like the one and a half percent range, right? I mean, it just suggests that there's, and the Fed is not overtly manipulating that far out the curve, right? It's it's consistent with this general pattern that we're just moving to an environment in which there's certainly risk of 
a significant disruption, um, you know, where all hell breaks loose and World War III breaks out in a kinetic form. Um, and we find the world in the need to finance all sorts of crazy private sector areas. But really, there's kind of this, this very different interpretation of what the risk-free rate is from the government, which is basically saying, you know, what else are you going to do with the money? Right. And, and the simple reality is, what else are you going to do with the money? Right. We don't have significant population growth. As much as we complain about the infrastructure and the need to make these investments, we don't really. Right. Um, if we were to decide to reshore everything, if we were to get serious about rebuilding the United States, if we were to get serious about increasing the capital invested per, per American and, and bringing back all of the industry and recreating the conditions under which entrepreneurship can flourish. Then heck yeah, I'd say, yeah, there's an opportunity for rates to rise, but we seem to be doing the exact opposite, right? I mean, everything we're doing seems to be about how do we effectively create um, more suppressed conditions in terms of the opportunity for investment, business formation, et cetera. So Mike, interestingly, you've been talking about the drivers of the long end not being impacted that much by the Fed, but by population growth and investment opportunities, as you were saying before. Now, uh, people like to talk about a neutral rate for the economy. So that would be round about something at which the economy doesn't overeat or cools down that much, right? And they tend to look at Fed hikes in relation to this neutral rate to understand whether conditions are getting tighter or not. So then I have to ask you, what's your take on this neutral rate? And where do you think the Fed can hike in such a financialized and highly leveraged economy? Well, so the challenge is, is that the neutral rate, one, we actually, is, as I mentioned before, there is no such thing as a neutral rate, right? Your neutral rate and my neutral rate, just like your CPI and my CPI are different, right? You're, you know, a young, spry 26-year-old. I'm an ancient 50-plus-year-old. I'm joking, uh, Alf. Um, <laughs> you were close on my age, and yeah, you were no, way, way too optimistic on your age as well, Mike. I, I, I am. As a, in a couple of weeks, I will be optimistic on my age. But yes, the um, you know, so so there is no one neutral rate, right? And this is part of the challenge that I have with this whole formula, you know, formulation. Is is if I think about that neutral rate as something like a normal distribution around what the Fed would cause a normal rate. The observed level that we, we see that in an empirical framework isn't actually going to be that center. It's going to be the point of maximum pain that we can bear as you start to move up that curve of defaults, right? And the character of that curve is very much dependent upon the behaviors that preceded it. And so when we lower interest rates, those who are most vulnerable will take advantage of that, shift themselves further down the curve and reset the neutral rate lower. Right. Until you enter into an environment in which there's such tremendous surplus or such tremendous opportunity to invest or you wipe out all those fragile, you know, marginal participants, you're not going to reset the neutral rate higher. Right. And so uh, this is what I'm struggling with in the general observation around this idea is, is that, you know, we create we keep creating conditions under which policy choices are setting that neutral rate lower and yet we're not creating the conditions that will allow it to move higher. So basically, stability breeds instability, Mike, is what you're saying. So artificial stability, one should say, suppressed volatility encourages unproductive allocation of resources, which then lowers the equilibrium real interest rate. Is that what you're saying? 
100% because at every stage in that process, right? Somebody is saying some variant of Lord, make me sober, just not today. I think, Mike, if, if we look at the current consensus, then I would argue that most people find that the neutral rate has actually increased compared to pre-COVID. What do you make of that? I think that's wrong. Uh, I mean, I just think that's wrong. Um, there's two things that I would point to on that. One is, is, is there was a fantastic study that, in my opinion, continues to get undervalued that came out of UC Davis that looked at historical pandemics and the impact that had on the neutral real rate. There's almost no examples of a pandemic or a global crisis creating conditions under which the neutral rate rises, right? You, you know, particularly if you X out war, and war has the unique characteristic of destroying all the factories, destroying all the roads, destroying all the railroads, so that you do need to make those productive investments. That's a very, very different, you know, if you just stop and think about that dynamic, right, it's hugely different in terms of the implications to rebuild a road that has been destroyed and no longer functional. Just again, you know, think about, you know, the, the idea of Metcalfe's law, right? You're creating this network, right? Well, if I destroy a path between two nodes on the network, I reduce the value of that network. By rebuilding that node, I increase the value of it. When you talk about things like the green revolution, right? You're not rebuilding a node. You're just saying, hey, I'm gonna put a nice, you know, parallel node to it that has, you know, bells and whistles associated with it and you know, maybe has a slightly golden sheen to it. Um, we can call it the yellow brick road, right? Um, as compared to just the brick road, but it doesn't actually add value in the process. Right. And so that can't reset. It can't create the conditions under which the real rate rises under that framework. Um, so I, I, I just I, I don't see it. And, and, I, and I keep using that phrase. Right. Because I feel that we're in this very weird world where everybody seems to have this clarity around. Oh, yeah, this is the answer this time in the same way that they had absolute clarity around 2008 and the recovery thereafter. And I've tried to point this out to people, like if you look at the recovery in commodity prices and China and everything else that occurred in the aftermath of 2008, it literally looks exactly like what we've just experienced. The only difference is post 2008, we didn't have the rush back into the economy. We didn't have the same degree of snafu in terms of, of reopening the system because we didn't actually shut it down, right? You had longshoremen who were not particularly busy in 2008, 2009, that began to get very busy 2010, 2011. But it wasn't this on-off function, right, that has created the frictions that I would argue largely drive the dynamics of um, the inflation that we've experienced. You didn't experience the frictions associated with, oh my God, I need to get out of urban environments because humans are a disease vector and I want to you know, be able to have space for my kids to um, you know, work for a study from home because we needed to dramatically expand the utility of the single family home into a commercial workplace, a school and everything else. Right. I mean, what a catastrophic, um, uh, you know, lack of utilization of commercial office space schools just being another form of that. Right. Offices for the children. Um, it, it, you know, we basically put all that on single family homes. And as a result, the, out, the, the demand curve for single family homes exploded outwards. And we're now experiencing all the problems associated with that, right? We want more homes in the wrong places. We want more apartments in the wrong places. We want them in Dallas and Atlanta. And, we, you know, you've got a crop of young people that are trying to pile their way into relatively inexpensive homes in Manhattan. 
uh, while ignoring, you know, various places that they might have been forced to previously, right? So they're all coming back at the same time. It, it's, it's just a mess, right? I mean, it's like trying to get out of a concert, right? It's creating, you know, a, a lot of chaos and confusion and what should be a relatively easy path is not. But Mike, I mean, if it's not real rates that have to be repriced higher after the pandemic, then it must be inflation expectation. I'm not wearing the hat of a, of a bond yeah. bear. I don't have one, but I'm going to wear one. So it must be inflation expectation because, of course, that has to be repriced higher. I mean, all this greening of the economy requires investment in stuff that we don't have right now. So that has to be inflationary. Plus, I heard that the boomers retiring will also be inflationary. Like this idea that we're just not going to have enough. If there was ever a century that you wanted to point to where we didn't have enough, that's what the 20th century was. We started the 20th century with roughly a billion people in the global labor force. We finished the 20th century with five and a half billion people in the global labor force. Those numbers are huge. I mean, repeat them again. You eat one billion at the start of the 20th century and five and a half billion at the end of the 20th century. Under the most optimistic metrics for the 21st century, we're talking about going from five and a half to 6.2. And that was before we began to discover that the Chinese lie about how many children they have. It was before we saw the collapse in population with COVID, et cetera. It's before we saw the decline in immigration that we're beginning to see, which lowers fertility rates, et cetera. Like we could actually end this century with fewer people in the global labor force than we started. Yeah. That is not what creates conditions of scarcity. I would tend to agree with that, Mike. But that brings me to the million-dollar question. I've seen a lot of debate ongoing over the past weeks whether the latest CPI print was the exact peak in this cycle. What's your take on that? I think that's hard. To, uh, first of all, I think it's hard to know. And two, I don't think it matters, except how it affects the Fed. right? And so this is part of the problem with the Fed and the behavior that they have entered into, and I've talked about this elsewhere, they now feel effectively embarrassed. And I actually highlighted that this was likely to happen. I, I, you know what, I need to find the tweet and, and highlight it, right? When the Fed came out and said that, that inflation is transitory, one, they expected it to retreat far more rapidly than those in the private sector, including myself, were saying. Right? I've consistently said it's very hard to maintain elevated inflation past 2022. I would argue that what we're seeing around the world suggests that that's actually increasingly accurate, right? That we're beginning to see significant deflationary and recessionary forces emerge that are likely to put significant pressure on many of the fast moving components of inflation that we're used to. At minimum, seeing them retreat, everything ranging from lumber to steel to lead to iron, et cetera, we're seeing tremendous pressure on those versus their original peaks. Um, and that's before things really slow down, right? And again, we're already seeing some evidence of breaking. Uh, but the Fed basically got themselves into a trap where they used the language transitory, and that led people to think that what they meant was prices were going to go back and it was going to be as if nothing had happened, right? Now, you know, to the vast majority of us, that was so fundamentally absurd that I think we underinvested in explaining that. Right, that we didn't actually say, you know, no, we're not actually expecting oil prices to go back to negative $37 a barrel. I, I've got a news flash for you. Negative $37 a barrel is not a sustainable price. But neither is $150 a barrel, right? Or $130 a barrel, or $6 gasoline in California. Those are not sustainable levels. They're impinging the consumption levels. And unlike 2008, and this is part of what I would argue that people miss. 
unlike 2008, which saw an extraordinary explosion over basically the three years from 2005 through 2008 of the growth of institutional investment in outright commodities, where it became very fashionable to say we're diversifying X percent of our portfolio using the Gary Gorton paper that identified commodities as a separate asset class. Like, that was brand new. And then that was exacerbated by the dynamics of price supports in the largest marginal buyers, particularly in the emerging markets where they had things like the price of gasoline fixed. So as the price of oil went from $13 a barrel to $150 a barrel, it was only in that last move that if you were a Chinese citizen, you experienced that increase in gasoline prices. Right. It basically was was being paid for out of the state coffers with negative profits from the refining operations of um, uh, firms like PetroChina, et cetera. Right. This time around, you've seen a much quicker response component. And I would argue that you're already seeing the, the much more negative effects on um, the ability to consume and import oil, gasoline, fertilizer, et cetera, into the emerging markets. Right. This is, you know, this is a real mess. If I look around the emerging markets who are the marginal buyers. And, and again, I would argue that people have largely forgotten that oil demand in the developed world has been stagnant and flat for an extended period of time. And the only growth was coming from the emerging markets. We kill the emerging markets again, like not to overuse the phrase, but where is that demand coming from? I just don't see it. Let's move to the investment idea, because you're basically saying that, you know, something is already breaking, yeah. which probably means your time horizon for bond deals to keep rising is you know, pretty much coming to an end, if I understand you correctly. But I don't want to anticipate your micro trade idea up to you, Mike. So what do we buy or what do we sell here? Yeah. So, so the trade that I proposed is basically to create a um, call option on euro dollars, right? By doing an in the money call spread, right? So um, there, there's a couple of different ways that you could do this. You could buy a call. So a euro dollar, the way it prices is effectively one minus the three month rate at whatever point you're looking at, right? Um, so if I, if I think about the dynamics of um, a zero rate, ostensibly the euro dollar is going to be at 100, right? So just 100 minus that rate. Now it's never going to quite be there because of the dynamics of the corridor pricing. Um, but, you know, that, and again, that's actually an important component. So when I talk about those euro dollar options that are beginning to price in negative rates, that's effectively a euro dollar call struck at 100, right? If that has positive value, the only way you make money is if euro dollars go above 100, in other words, negative rates, right? Um, the trade, that high level of volatility means that buying a call option, exactly mimicking what you're talking about in terms of selling a straddle where your break even is, if I try to bet directionally on significantly higher rates, and I try to do so in a manner that is respectful of the fact that, man, I actually don't know what the Fed might choose to do, right? I mean, it is entirely possible that they make an incredible policy error they choose not to hesitate. They choose to liquidate stocks, liquidate. I mean, this is, you know, we're, we're, we're watching Thomas Mellon get his chance yet again to, you know, liquidate stocks, liquidate labor, all in the name of, you know, some form of, you know, Germanic, uh, you know, guilt component, right? Um, we're going to purge the original sin of the central bankers. Um, you know, that you don't want to pay up for that vol. So the structure that I've adopted is going long one call and short another call. And my preference is to actually do that in a form 
where I'm going long that spread in an in the money framework, right? So I'm going, I'm buying a 98 and I'm selling a 95, or I'm sorry, 98.5, right? On the December 22 euro dollar. Right now, that's going to cost you about five cents if you trade it well. Actually, when I wrote the trade up, it was about four and a half cents. I think as of today, it's probably six cents. Um, and that 50 cent spread effectively says if the three month rate at the end of December is sitting at one and a half percent, right? So remember that that is going to be below the level that is currently priced into the market. In other words, some expectation that the Fed was overly aggressive in its plan to raise interest rates and shrink the balance sheet plays out, right? So, so if we ultimately end up with the three month rate at one and a half percent in December of 22, really November of 22 is, is, you know, when you start seeing this priced in, the trade expires, I believe on December 19th of 2022. And at any point in time, if we have a crisis or if markets fall sharply or the expectation that the Fed may pause its hiking process, after doing a 50 basis point to see what the long and variable lags, et cetera. You know, if that ends up happening, then this trade should appreciate on two fronts. One is as the vol retreats, you're gonna see that lower strike or that higher strike more accurately, lower yield strike um, fall off much more rapidly than the top strike, right? Um, effectively, as the volatility compresses, you should see some gain associated with that that could give you the opportunity to cover off that position as well, right? Leaving you with a naked call that you've picked up much more effectively and protecting your portfolio. The second um, thing that I would point out is, is that because I've bought and sold an option, I've neutralized my vol exposure, right? And that's really critical in this environment because one of the biggest things that is likely to happen is as it becomes clear what the Fed is ultimately going to do, that volatility is likely to retreat. It's only under conditions of greater uncertainty that that volatility rises. So, Mike, if you look at your payoff, given the structure you have made, basically, for the audience to understand, basically, you're assuming that uh, the final realized Fed funds rate or LIBOR in this case are way below what markets are pricing in. And you're going to end up making money if the LIBOR sets at year end around or below one and a half percent. Is that correct? Actually, you'll end up making money if it if it ends up setting up the LIBOR rate ends up setting up anywhere below basically one point nine five, right? So yeah, yeah, sure, sure, yeah, because it's um, ninety eight, ninety eight and a half. Right. So if if, if I end up below one ninety five, I'm break even. Mm -hmm. My expectation is is that you're going to end up somewhere between one twenty five and one seventy five. I actually mm -hmm. highlighted this in some of the materials that I sent you. That if I look at the history of Fed rate hikes from the point that a twos 10 yield inversion occurs, and this includes the hiking cycle from 2007, it includes the hiking cycle in 2015, you know, the, the most you end up with is basically another 125 basis points of hikes, right? That would take you to 175. Now, the obvious exception to that is the Volcker hiking cycle, right? Where Volcker ignored the market signals and willingly inverted the curve and willingly crashed the economy, pulling, you know, basically holding firm to Thomas Mellon's liquidate stocks, liquidate labor framework, which is what he really did. Um, I don't think that we have the ability to do that for several reasons, um, but I do think that, that that is obviously the risk. And that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't suggest at this juncture, for example, selling the put or selling that straddle 
because who really knows what's going to end up happening here? I love that shortfall structure, but I'd feel much more comfortable putting that on if the Fed hikes 50 basis points and then comes out particularly strongly yet again. Um, you know, at that point, it becomes very easy. And so from my standpoint, the entry on this is you should be doing it now. You should be putting in 50% of your trade and waiting. And if the Fed hikes another 50 basis points, you'll get an opportunity to put this trade on cheaper. But this is a give or take under current structure. It's anywhere from a five to one to a 10 to one payoff relative to the premium that you spend. My typical break even, the minimum that I'm looking for in an option trade is something that has, in my opinion, a better than 50% probability of paying off. And I want to see roughly a four to one payout in that scenario. My expectation is that better than 50% chance we end at 175 or below, that creates conditions under which this would be roughly a five to one payoff. Well, Mike, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it is definitely a bullish duration, bullish fixed income trade because bonds need to rally. In terms of the only reason why I'm not pushing out the curve, um, it, it, you know, is because I the uncertainty of of we are actually in different dynamics that we've seen. And if the Fed were to back off, I think there's a reasonable chance that you'd actually see the back end, the, the curve steepen under that framework right now. Ultimately, that steepener, you know, that tends to be the real recession signal more than anything yes. else, right? Just because the long and variable lags associated with monetary policy are not going to be there rapidly enough to save you. Yeah, we just discussed with Andreas before the, the segment, why is Mike not simply buying 10 or 30 year bonds here? And then the answer was exactly that, that for banks, for your bucks, if your theory unfolds, then probably you make more money at the front end in a, in a limited loss structure as you structured basically, rather than just go and buy 10 or 30 year bonds. But we're going to discuss that further in the post segment, whether we buy or not buy your trade. In the meantime, Mike, if the few people out there that don't know you yet want to find you, where can they find your work? Uh, easiest way to find me is on Twitter, uh, at profplum99. You can also find my work um, at our Simplify website, uh, www.simplify.us. The, uh, the other uh, uh, thing that I would just highlight is, is I, I do speak fairly frequently. Uh, you can find me on Real Vision, YouTube, etc. So if, if you wanted to hear more of my droning monotone, um, uh, feel free to check those out. Thank you so much for joining the macro trading flow, Mike. It's been an honor to host you. And I also want to uh, thank you personally, since I'm very long ARKK myself. So thank you for pulling interest rates in a lower direction. I think that's quite needed for my trade. So. <laughs> you, you got a, another 40% to go to match the NASDAQ at its lows, right? Um, do I think that this is the right way to think about it? Who knows? But the, you know, the, the most important thing to remember about something like ARK is that the wonderful thing about problems in equity markets is just that they become smaller as they lose money. And this is part of the reason why equity markets tend to continue to rise over time is problem companies disappear. Kathy Woods disappears. Bill Huang disappears. Um, they go away. Credit manifests itself a little bit differently because it's often used as collateral. It magnifies as problems, right? So I, I I, right now, I think that, that you know we're pretty far into this bear market for unprofitable tech. And it's important for people to remember, that's what the bear market was in 2000, right? It wasn't the super profitable stuff. Yes, Microsoft got taken down. Yes, Cisco got taken down. But the entire story there was low corporate profitability, 
high speculative activity. We're going to make it up in the future. The same types of companies have behaved literally almost exactly the same way, right? And out of those, we'll find a few hidden gems. Who knows what they are? You know, that'll be the next Microsoft, et cetera, if we get lucky. Um, but we're, we're pretty far through that process, I would argue. I still think I need to prepare my wife for that 40% drawdown that I had ahead yeah. of me here at KK. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's like, you know, the classic definition of what's a market that's fallen, you know, 90%, a market that fell 80% and then fell 50% more, right? So <laughs> You can tell her that Kathy Wood says it's going to compound 50% return over the next five years, and that's just relax. It's going to be fine. That's what she says, at least. Thank you for being here, Mike. It's been a pleasure. Alpha, I appreciate it. Thank you. Ciao, guys. Hey guys, we're back. And actually, Andreas, we don't have somebody talking about commodities or Brazil this time. We have a bond bull for the first time on the macro trading floor. There are actually guys that want to build structures to buy fixed income. Can you believe that? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, this is a very, very contrarian bet right now. Uh, so I also suppose that uh, Mike will get quite the pushback uh, on his trade from our audience. Uh, but I am probably more tempted of buying it than you are. Uh, but let's get back to that. Uh, at least uh, I think we get a, we have a better risk reward today in terms of buying bonds than we had a couple of months ago. Well, that's pretty safe to say, I would argue. Uh, Mike brought some very interesting points. Let's go through them for a second. So he basically is telling us that something is already breaking, right? Under the surface, if you look at the unprofitable tech index from Goldman Sachs, is down anywhere between 40 and 60%, depending on which stock do you look at the, into that basket. Credit spreads are starting to widen again, seriously. High yield credit spreads in America above 440 basis points. Well, you know. In 18, we went at 500 before the Federal Reserve actually had to jump in and pivot to uh, dovish stance. And then he basically is saying that, you know, the economy is going to slow down relatively aggressively as well. So what do you make of the um, overall argument that Mike brought forward? I lean the exact same way on demand. Uh, as I uh, also said earlier in the podcast, we have compelling evidence that the earnings cycle, both in terms of household earnings, but also company earnings is, is going south. Uh, we have compelling evidence uh, that forward-looking indicators uh, of PMIs, both in Europe and in the US, point to clear recession risks, at least in the manufacturing sector. It's more debatable in the service sector, but at least in the manufacturing sector. Uh, and I mean, if you combine the two, uh, then you have a very weak demand side heading into the second quarter uh, and also into the third quarter of this year. Uh, so I I am leaning in the same direction. I, I think central banks will be surprised to the downside on growth. Uh, the question is whether it is as easy to pivot uh, this year compared to, for example, 2018, given that we have an inflation pressure running substantially above target. That's a big game changer to me. And that's why it is not as easy to call for that uh, pivot compared to in 2018 when things started to break. Yeah, so I, I agree completely. It's a different macro environment in 2017, 18, 19. If you had a tightening in financial conditions or so-called in uh, central bank and jargon, an unwarranted tightening of financial conditions, 
they would just come in verbally first. And then the risk parity portfolio of bond and stocks would just deliver at the end of the day, right? And this time, Andreas, it's pretty clear that if inflation doesn't slow down more than forwards and more, not, not rather than forwards, what's priced in the summary of economic projections of the Fed themselves. So it gives them a certainty that things are slowing down. I find it hard to believe that they will be comfortable with uh, dialing back their hawkish stance, which makes it also more complicated to be long fixed income from my perspective. Before we jump into the construction of the trade and whether we buy or sell the trade, let's talk for a second about a very interesting argument Mike made when it comes to the effect of the pandemic on equilibrium long-term real interest rates. What do you And, and inflation as well, and trend inflation, he spoke about that too. So what do you make of, of his argument? Well, this is probably the key question to be able to answer in terms of the medium-term trends for both inflation and interest rates. I think we have pretty clear evidence by now that the labor force is not as big and won't get as big as it was pre-COVID. Uh, we have compelling evidence of that in the US, but also to a certain extent in Europe. Um, and essentially, to be very clear, it, it is the boomers that aren't returning to the labor force, they've simply managed to save uh, sufficient funds to just retire now. Um, and then I also suppose that uh, fears of COVID have played a role in, in, in that regards. Uh, and to me, <laughs> you're even wearing the, wearing the t-shirt, I can see you cannot fight the demographics over the medium term. So the perfect t-shirt for that question. Um, and um, therefore, my best guess would be that the equilibrium neutral rate over the medium term has gone down, not up. And and that, I mean, that's in sharp contrast to what the market currently expects. Yeah. So if you look at this terminal rate being priced in, right, by the market now, it seems to be comfortably around about 2.5%. Also looking at forwards down the road now, if you look at nominal interest rates, they sort of plateau around 2.5%, 2.25%, and 2.5% over the long term, right? And actually, if you make up the numbers there, um, it either means that the real equilibrium interest rate has gone up compared to 2018, for example, or that trend inflation is much higher than it was before the pandemic. And our real interest rates, obviously, that's to do with the labor force, the productivity trends, the global debt that we have on our shoulder, especially on the private sector side. I mean, guys, those things have gotten worse. I mean, look at the number of births that China had last year. 10 million new births is the lowest amount since the great Chinese famine in 1960s. I mean, it's not getting any better when it comes to, to demographics. And then if you're going to tell me that having a, a private debt loads that are higher than in 2018 is good for equilibrium real interest rates, I also can't buy that argument. Actually, the fight back comes mostly, I think, from trend inflation, Andreas, because a lot of people are talking about um, long-term trend inflation to be higher than the one and a half, two percent we saw in developing economies over the last 10 to 15 years. So what do you make of the inflation argument that makes for nominal neutral rates to be higher? I think there is more to that argument, um, especially given uh, the discussion uh, we also had with Mike on the price of, of transitioning towards a green society. Uh, I know Mike is very upbeat on technology solving it for us. Um, the issue I have with that argument is that given uh, the supply issues that we're faced with right now as a consequence of the Ukraine crisis, we've basically brought forward this green transitioning 
by a couple of decades in a week. Um, and obviously that will uh, come with the price repercussion. Uh, so I think that's the game changer. Uh, I mean, we've had geopolitical issues forcing us to bring forward uh, a transition towards a green society that is costly. Um, and therefore, I, I, I basically put more emphasis on that argument compared uh, to the other one uh, in terms of, of the uh, long-term uh, equilibrium real rates. Uh, so I'm a bit more split on that question. Nevertheless, that would be, by the way you design it, a, a, a bad inflation rather than a good inflation, as in it doesn't help real wages then to go up and feed this inflation loop mechanism. You're only talking about a constraint when it comes to investment and the, basically the, well, the production of these green commodities we need to green the economy against the consumption we're going to be having to make, which is much larger. So rather a supply-demand imbalance in some commodities generating inflation than a healthy long-term inflationary pressures. Anyway, Andreas, enough with the macro blubbering. We need to talk about the trade idea from Mike, which is basically uh, a call spread on, on Eurodollar, December 2022, Eurodollar contract. Um, it sounds very complicated. In, re in reality, it's really not. What Mike Green is looking for is for LIBOR to print by the end of the year, December 2022, anywhere south of 1.95% to be in the money, which would mean, Andreas, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Federal Reserve can only hike up to an additional 150 basis point uh, for Mike to be in the money between now and year end. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, there is an added layer of uh, uh, liquidity risk on top of the federal funds. Uh, so that's why uh, you can only have a, a top of the range around 175 or thereabout in um, in the federal funds. So, um, I mean, of course, we will, <laughs> we will get a test of this thesis already soon. Um, that's for sure. Uh, if, if the Fed delivers 50 basis points in, um, in the meeting in May, then... Uh, we're already one third of, of the way there. <laughs> um, Basically, Mike is telling us that if the Fed is roundabout certain to hike 50 basis points in May, then he is telling us that the economy is going to slow down or risk assets are going to break big times, either or, or both of them combined somewhere pretty soon. Otherwise, his 50 basis point hikes cumulative are going to easily bring him out of the money because as the call spread is built effectively, he's protecting his downside he is buying a call option and selling a call option, once again, each other on euro dollar. It's costing him five cents. And he has an upside of up to 40, 50 cents, depending on where the, 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 the LIBOR contract ends by the end of the year. Anywhere south of 195%, he makes money. The lower it is, the better it is. Although, you know, if it drops at 0% and the Fed doesn't like at all or even cuts by the end of the year, also his upside is capped. So he's trying to limit the volatility both sides, but ultimately... He needs bond market to rally. Andreas, am I correct? Yeah, you are. Um, and therefore, if um, we look for sort of practical ways of implementing this outside of option space, then I guess the uh, directional bet is to bet on short-term interest rates, say between one and three years on the US Treasury curve, uh, betting on those interest rates going down. 
Simple as that. Um, and there are ETFs uh, replicating the um, uh, return of a one to three uh, bond portfolio uh, on the US Treasury curve. So th that would work because as at the moment we have around about 300 basis points of cumulative tightening priced in over the next 15 months, where the Federal Reserve to deliver only between brackets 150 or 175 or less tightening than that, then you will be making money because you will be basically buying bonds pricing in much more tightening than that. And so yields will have to drop basically and the carry would help you making money if you buy these bonds. As Andrea said, there are plenty of ETFs that replicate one to three year part of the bond curve issued by Vanguard, iShares, what have you, very large and liquid ETFs. So it's um, a, a more delta intensive structure, but at the end of the day, it's really much the same trade. So shortened bond yields reflect at the moment, according to Mike, way too much tightening compared to what he expects the Fed to be able to deliver. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I mean, on the demand side of the economy, I am tempted to give this trade a green light um, because we have compelling evidence from both uh, PMIs, uh, but also other forward-looking indicators that the demand side is going to disappoint markedly in the second half of the year. We also know that the impulse from the stimulus from 2020 and 21 is fading fast. And um, by the usual lead lag patterns, we should expect that to be very clear uh, come the uh, second part of this year. Uh, so I essentially don't really see uh, any positive signals for growth right now. The dark horse for this trade, if you ask me, is the supply side. Um, since we still don't really have a good feeling about what's going on in China, given um, the supply constraints of the super lockdown that they've implemented in Guangzhou and uh, and Shanghai, uh, I saw some numbers from from uh, some truck uh, organization in China um, showing that they are running at twenty percent capacity in Shanghai uh, on, on on trucking capacity, which is I mean out of this world. Um, so so we don't really know the repercussions of those supply chain constraints again. Uh, and they tend to feed in with the time lag. Um, so I guess that's the main reason to stay a bit sidelined in terms of trying to buy bonds yet. I mean, I've been resisting the temptation of the sirens, TLT and Boons and all these guys calling at me to buy them. The macro environment is a bit different than it was in 2017 or 2018, where a tightening of financial conditions would scare the Fed at some point for them to be back into the market. But when I look at inflation expectation in 2018, Andreas, we had five-year, five-year forward inflation expectation and 2.3%. And today they're already 2.8%. We had the next five-year CPIs, inflation swaps, pricing in inflation to be around 2%. We have today them pricing in inflation to be 3.5% with a non-negligible chance it's going to print at 5%. I mean... The situation is a bit different than it was back then. It's more difficult for the Fed to come in and, and, and ease financial conditions. So basically, I feel that buying bonds now either bets on a very large correction in risk assets, for which I'd rather be short risk assets than long bonds if I want to express that trade, or basically you're saying that inflation has peaked. And you're saying that it not only has peaked, mate, but it's going down faster than what the Federal Reserve expected to go, basically. Uh, so by the end of the day, which I dislike about this trade, you're going to be short oil if you enter this trade. Yeah. yeah, Because oil is super correlated 
with long-term inflation expectations uh, for some reason. I mean, long-term inflation expectations tend to be too spot-focused, if you ask me. Um, But nevertheless, uh, there is a strong correlation between the yearly impulse from the oil price uh, and and long-term inflation expectations. Uh, So you need energy commodities to backtrack on their recent rally um, for this trade to work right now. And given what we've seen in natural gas um, markets this week, I maybe tend to think that this is a tad too early. Yeah, so basically we want to be long bonds, Mike and listeners, but uh, we need some confirming evidence that either the growth is slowing down aggressively or risk assets are going down big times or inflation is printing below what the Federal Reserve and the ECB are pricing in already to come in for 2022. Mm. I personally think that we haven't seen yet a constellation of events that make me want to go long bonds at the moment. Although I do understand Mike and the way he structured the trade is very smart to limit it that is downside and have a an upside which is five to one or seven to one or ten to one even depending on where does it land, where do, where do Fed funds rate land at the end of the year. I do understand this is set up and I respect it, but I don't see yet the constellation required to basically be long bonds. But I'm still planning on buying bonds in the second half of the year. <laughs> Let me put it like that. I think the, the environment will show showcase itself pretty soon. Well, guys, uh, that's it for today. Uh, again, the trade from Mike Green was a long cold spread on Euro dollar December 2022, uh, struck between 98 and 98 and a half. In layman terms, that means that he expects the Federal Reserve to be able to hike maximum all the way up to 175 basis point. Um, And that means that if he's right and they hike less, he makes money. Otherwise, he loses money. Effectively, it's a long bond trade. We are recording on April 27, 2022. And we want to thank you again for listening to the Macro Trading Floor. And we want to invite you to subscribe to all the podcast apps, wherever you listen to the podcast, rate us, subscribe to the YouTube uh, Blockworks Macro channel, and just don't miss any of these weekly interviews we have. A goodbye from Alfonso Peccatiello. And from me, Andrea Stino. 